0: Welcome to another episode of the Bioinformatics Chat. I'm Jacob Schreiber, and I'm joined today by Dr. Shiger Avsak. Uh, Shiger did his PhD at the Technical University of Munich under Dr. Julian Gaggenau. Uh Now he's a research scientist at DeepMind. Thank you for being with us, Shiger. Yeah, thanks for having me. So what's it like working at DeepMind? It seems like it's a pretty popular company. It's always in the news. I imagine that you have uh, a good experience there. Yeah, I like it.
1: Um it's really a great environment to do research um, and yeah, there's a lot of exciting things going on at DeepMind and lots of, uh, you know, great people to, to talk to and brainstorm about ideas
0: and, and yeah, so I, I really like it. One of the things that I hear a lot is that there's kind of a uh, distinction between doing research in an academic setting where you kind of have your freedom to pursue whatever you want and then industry jobs were you know if you're in academia then industry jobs are kind of like looked down on but then um, more recently it seems as though there has been a lot of kind of blurring of the line where there are really great industry jobs that involve doing cutting-edge research and that DeepMind is one of the places where this seems like a possibility is that something that you have found
1: yeah yeah I mean we like to say, DeepMind, that it's we're kind of doing the best of both worlds. Although, I mean, this is, of course, you have to take it with the grain of salt to basically to have the freedom of academia or to explore really fundamental questions in science uh, and try to address them and, and be really ambitious. Um, and on the other hand, to still be focused and to have that industry focus on problems and... Um, and be able to kind of sustain that focus across even multiple years, uh, for example. So I guess that's, yeah, kind of to me, the biggest distinction with um, academia is that, you know, you do less things, um, but you try to do, you know, you, you try to be more focused on specific problems. But the 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 problems that, you know, the questions that we are after, at least uh, as part of the science team at DeepMind are, you know, are are, you know, just generally... Uh, open questions in in science so it's pretty similar from that perspective
0: i think that one of the differences is kind of the unit of focus in the sense that when you're in academia a lot of focus is put on the next publication and so you want to know how much you need to do in order to you know finish that next publication then move on to another project sometimes in industry i'm I'm going to ask you whether or not this is the case at DeepMind. Basically, the unit of focus is on some greater product where you care a lot more about, you know, in the the case of AlphaFold, like the, the higher problem is trying to figure out like protein folding and if a manuscript happens to fall out, that's great. Otherwise, you know, you're still trying to focus on this larger goal. Have you found that in your work generally that the focus is less on publications?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um there's not so much there's not so much pressure to publish uh to then get you know tenured and so on because of the um yeah the recognition system is slightly different i'd say from uh from academia where ac- academia is primarily measured by your publications and and then your grants and so on whereas in indeed you kind of are already in a in an environment um and that kind of allows you to focus more on maybe more long term goals, I would say, um, and then, yeah, really try to think on what what where you're trying to get to overall, and you know then think about the publications as a as a secondary step, although I mean it's very important to us to still publish you know really good research because obviously you also don't want to postpone for too long um because you want to you know
0: allow other people to also build on top of your ideas, right, right of course. Uh, I mean, some could also say, though, that there's less focus on, you know, tenure because you don't have tenure at DeepMind. Uh, That's, you know, an academic construct. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So we invited you on the show because we had a, uh, you recently had a publication. I think that it's basically the blueprint for how computational papers in biology should be performed. First, Burn out of academia and go get an industry job. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I really enjoyed, I enjoyed reading it. But when I was talking with other people about it, there was a huge criticism that almost always came up, and I was hoping that you could address it first. Basically, this work kind of grew out of the work that David Kelly did uh, with Bassett and Basenji, where the idea was you were taking a nucleotide sequence and you were trying to make prediction for various tracks. Now, this paper proposes a model named Informer, and already right there, like, you are deviating from David Kelly's naming scheme of focusing on dog names, so I was hoping that you could clear the air and tell us why you chose this name Informer, as opposed to, say, you know, Corgi.
1: Yeah, we had a long discussion around how we should name, name it, and uh, yeah, I don't know, at the end, you just have to, have to pick one. Uh, we couldn't come up with a good, good dog name uh and we also have some people that really like cats a deep mind so you know <laughs> no I'm just
0: kidding um <laughs> I guess I wanted the downside to trying to pick a dog name is that because the model relies on like long-term attention there's no real dog that kind of fits that mold, right Pro- yeah probably probably although I have to say I did I, like
1: we searched a bit for for dog names and then yeah, if if you go into the regime of these big dogs, then they kind of have this dangerous connotation. So you also don't want to have <laughs> something that you know looks super dangerous. So I think maybe
0: that's why we kind of deviated from from that point. Yeah. So you um, you started working on this project, this in, this informal work, kind of off the heels of this paper uh, where you proposed this model named BPNet. Can you talk a little bit about your inspirations for BPNet, give a little bit of a description of what that is, and then talk about how that fed into the informal work.
1: So BPNet is kind of a more a smaller and a more focused version um, of a similar kinds of architecture, I would say. Uh, so BPNet is also a model that takes as input DNA sequence and predicts um, the experimental coverage tracks, uh, in our case for the paper, this was Chipnex's data, which is basically high resolution, uh, chip SIG data that measures, uh, transcription factor binding occupancy in the genome. Um, and the key feature of this data set is that it's high resolution. So you get at the location of where transcription factors bind in the genome, you get specific, like very, like, um, mark footprints. Uh, or signatures where you see really you know high amounts of reads, at um, at and, and they the key feature is that they're really precisely placed, so you can maybe even get down to a specific base um,
0: nucleotide that is at the boundary of the transcription factor. So you're talking specifically about the fact that the data is from Chip Exo as opposed to Chip Seq? Exactly yes, exactly. Okay.
1: So the key motivation there is basically what you know model. Um, or loss function should use to learn from this data, as well as then you know how to interpret this model um, in more detail. And in that project, yeah, we we used dilated convolutions uh, and a specific um, loss function that was able to deal with um, this very sparse chip nexus data. Uh, and the model basically is yeah trains tries to recreate the experimental signal, and by doing so. It learns about the, the binding of different transcription factors. Uh, and then we had a series of interpretation tools that were then able to distill the knowledge the, the knowledge that this model has learned into um, like objects that we're very familiar with. In this case, uh, these were you know transcription factor binding motifs um, as you know frequently used in the bioinformatics community, as well as to study. Um, the spatial relationships between um, the binding of transcription factors. So, for example, does a transcription factor bind more to DNA if you have another protein nearby uh, to it? And and at what distance should they be apart in order for that binding to be um, most highly effective? Um, so in relation to the informer work, you can think of the informer as a... or also the Basenji work, done by David, um, as a scale-up version of it where PPNet is trained on 1000 base pairs and it outputs data at base resolution so it will predict the signal at every base whereas Enformer and Basenji is trained, the input is 200,000 base pairs so it's 200 times longer input sequence um, and the output is not at base resolution but it's at 28 base pair uh, resolution so um, because you know the, it becomes difficult, quite challenging if you're dealing with base resolution data at such long distances. Um, it just burns a lot of memory. Um, so the yeah the analogy is that they're both you know sequence to sequence models. They predict experimental data, but they d- they do it at different scales and therefore they capture slightly different biological phenomena. So BPNet captures more the binding and the interaction between individual transcription factors, whereas Informer um, tries to Go and it tries to focus on you know higher, higher order phenot- molecular phenotypes such as uh, gene expression and how this is you know composed out of more basic units such as DNA accessibility and so forth um, to arrive at then accurate predictions.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good description. That the general trend that I've seen is that the, the models like uh, Bisenji et etc. Uh, although they do take in nucleotide sequence to try to predict some sort of uh, functional track, that they're doing it at a much coarser resolution. And so you're able to pick up these much larger things, whereas a model like your, your previous work with BPNet focused very specifically on fine-grained detail, base-level details, and the insights that you can get when you look at changes at single base-per-resolution. Exactly, yes, exactly. So what inspired you to start this work on Informer to basically take you know the Basenji model and say, this isn't good enough, and continue the work on it?
1: um it's cl- like it's clear that the so there's been several papers now on publish and and we, we know a lot of we know a lot but not yet as much as we would want about enhancer biology and about what lo- at what long distances do enhancers so enhancers are you know regulatory elements uh that typically you know attract you know um transcriptional machinery and they enhance transcription of nearby genes. Um, And it's known that, you know, so the Basenji model had a receptive field. So this is basically whenever you're predicting a specific position in the genome is how far left and right of that position will you see, like how how much of the sequence will you see left and right of it in order to make your prediction. And in the case of Basenji, I think this was um, twenty thousand. Uh, base pairs, I think, left and right. So the receptive field is 40,000 base pairs overall. And we know that you can have enhancers that act at much longer distances. You can have even things beyond a megabase. Um, So it was clear to me that you need a better way to capture these long-range interactions. Um, Although one easy thing you could do, you can imagine, is to basically just put more layers into Basenji uh, and You know, gain a larger receptive field that way, but the problem with that is that the path between long-range interactions and you know your your position of interest that you're trying to predict wouldn't be very direct. And you know, at some point, if you're using dilated convolutions with a width of three, your the next bin starts to reach out of the sequence, and it it doesn't. It's not as meaningful anymore. Um, So I I saw that kind of the need to reflect the biology better in in the model architecture and transformers seem to quite a good fit because they have this ability to um, basically the connection between an element and another element in the sequence that you're trying to look at is direct right you don't have to um, integrate that information over many
0: steps Um, so they seem like a, a good fit so to summarize, basically you saw that Basenji had a limited receptive field that was much smaller than you expected real biology to be. Exactly. Because these regulatory elements can act over very long distances. And so you said rather than having multiple layers of dilated convolutions increasing the receptive field sequentially like yeah. Basenji does, you were saying, what if instead we just used an approach where you model all pairwise contacts like a transformer?
1: Exactly, yes. Exactly.
0: Yeah, so I thought that that made, that made a lot of sense to me. That um, kind of with these dilated convolutions that you are I, it, it doesn't seem it doesn't seem super reasonable that you need all of these layers in order to do very complicated processing of the sequence in order to get the output. It seemed more like the multiple layers were necessary just to slowly increase the receptive field, um, but if you were able to replace that whole mechanism with a you know more powerful layers that were both they were aggregating information from everywhere at every step that you could learn more um a more powerful representation yeah exactly so do you want to walk through some of the basic results that you saw i assume you compared it to basenji and saw that basenji did a lot better than you and so you had to be like oh shit and then like <laughs> throw out those results real quick
1: yeah um i mean the the road to, towards like getting the model to work isn't straight uh always but yeah um it, it took some time to get the model off the ground especially with transformers you need you need a few tricks to to get them to get them to work so i was really fortunate to be a deep mind and you know be really surrounded with people who are experts in and getting these models to work and to have all the tricks at hand
0: that's actually a really good point i was uh maybe you're about to talk about this but i was wondering if you could talk about some of the tricks that you got to work you talk about them in the paper
1: yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that was important was, for example, like increasing the learning rate, like gradually increasing the learning rate. Um, and I think this was, was probably one of the most important things. And then put it, putting the normalization right before the attention um, was also another trick that allowed us to, to fit this uh, data better. Um, and just generally, yeah. You had to do a bit of learning. The learning rate is much, like, it's quite different from Basenji. Uh, so it seems like transformers need much lower learning rates compared to dilated convolution. So that also had to be tweaked um, to to get it to work, basically.
0: Yeah, yeah, but these, like, you know, these are, like, these are the tweaks. These are the boring things. I was talking about these, like, uh, these, you know, basis functions that you were using.
1: Oh, yeah. The, this was another thing, yeah. Maybe let me just explain briefly about how... Um, uh, relative, like how these positional encodings work in transformers for context. Um, so there are two ways to encode positional information into transformers, uh, you can do absolute positional encodings where you add you basically you have, um, you have different sine waves, uh, like basis functions that and then you add slightly different signal to, diff- to different positions. Um, so that you know, whenever you're looking at two different positions, um, you're able to roughly tell uh, how far apart they are by, by basically kind of de- like unpacking that extra component that you added in at the beginning. Um, and they're called absolute positional encodings because this is what you do something at the beginning and then um, you, you let the model like learn about this. Um, the other, cate- uh, and this works pretty well in language. Uh the other category are relative positional encodings, where when you're building up the attention matrix wh- where you're basically computing how much each position should attend to other positions, um you are also considering their relative distance. Uh and then you have a separate function that tells you, okay, if you're, you know, I don't know, ten positions apart, you should, you know, you should prefer positions more at at specific distances. And you can also have terms that depending on your the the query kind of content, you can look for different distances. So, for example, if you're I don't know an enhancer, then you might look at more
0: proximal things. Whereas if you're a a promoter, you might look at more distal things. So to jump in and and to summarize real quick, that the transformer layers, the transformers by themselves have no notion of positions. They take in sets of elements, and you know the self similarity doesn't account for the the you know the position in the sequence. And so, when you're in domains like NLP or whatever, where position does matter, what they do is they concatenate features to their representations based on the either absolute or relative position of those features to each other. And so, when you tried these kind of traditional position embedding approaches for this genomic data, you found that it didn't work particularly well.
1: Exactly. So we with these relative positional encodings, uh, either absolute or basic positional coordinates of relative, like basic relative positional coordinates, we couldn't improve it beyond the, um, the, on beyond dilated convolutions. And then, then I started thinking on like, what's the, what would be a better way to model this? And what's, what are kind of the key properties of this data? And one of the key features is that the, there's kind of a power law decay of um, the influence between enhancers and and promoters. So I thought maybe we have to put something like this into the model, or we should have the model, we should give the model the ability to learn, um, to learn about this. Uh, so, yeah, and then then we added um, a special set of basis functions that are. You know, closer to um, what we expect to be to happen biologically, um, to have these decay, d- decaying functions, as well as we also added the asymmetry uh, to basically distinguish between what is upstream and what is downstream
0: uh, of the elements. I think that, that makes, those those made a lot of sense to me that you would try to incorporate these types of biological constraints. I think one of the big differences that people sometimes view, they, they see things that work well in the NLP setting and they say, oh, that's a sequences of words, right? And then they see genomics like, oh, that's a sequences of amino acids or nucleotides. so They must be the same thing. But really, they're they're quite different. That with language, uh, you can have a single word that, regardless of where it is in the sentence, well, not regardless, but th- there can be a single word anywhere in the sentence that can drastically change the meaning. Although you can have variants in you know genomic data, typically things are a lot smoother. That you need you know entire regulatory elements, and like you're saying, there are these physical constraints that even though you know, linear distance doesn't quite mean uh, distance in 3D space. It sort of does.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the language is much, much more structured than DNA, right? The DNA is kind of, you know, evolution gradually adding up elements. And then,
0: uh, (laughs) yeah, it's it's a different construct a bit. Something, though, that kind of was inspired from the NLP field that I was thinking about is that typically people... When they talk about like relative encodings, they would look at the distance in the sentence. And that is kind of a naive approach that of course, you know, words that are closer together probably have more similar, you know, they're, they're operating on the same meaning. But in truth, what you want to operate it on is like a parse tray. You want to have relative embeddings where the relative encoding comes from distance along the parse tray so that you can get things that are in the same clause to mean the same thing regardless of, you know, if you're crossing a comma or whatever. And so, in the same way that one might build a relative embedding based on a parse tree, it seems like potentially you can encode distance here, relative distance, using a high uh, C contact map. I was wondering whether or not you considered trying to use chromatin architecture when creating these positional embeddings.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's an idea that that came up uh, as well. Uh, although f- for this project, we we wanted to stay, uh, like, we wanted to use it. A sequ- we wanted to have the model to be sequence only, uh, so we went we went down that route to basically keep keep it sequence only, and then try to see if if there's any properties that the model has learned that are reminiscent of things like uh, contact maps, and we, we saw we saw some, uh, for example, like uh, insulator elements. Uh, although it's clear, it's still unclear, as you said, with the parse tree and so on, if this is the, the best, the optimal architecture to basically. You know, say on whether you're looking beyond a specific insulator element or not, because that information has to be integrated across multiple layers
0: in the architecture. That makes sense. So, one of the reasons that I really like this paper, and I think it's kind of the standard for how computational modeling should be done, is that you start off the paper, and of course, you say, You talk about the related work that you build upon these previous models, and you show then the generic setting of just, you train on some chromosomes, you make predictions for other chromosomes, that your model outperforms these previous approaches. And you have a lot of cool visualizations, showing not just global measures, but also visually, like, look at it, it's better. Um, I think that that is all particularly compelling, but that I think that sometimes a lot of papers in computational biology stop there. They say, okay, my model is better, therefore one would use it in theory to do all of these other things. But for your paper, like you're done with all that by like page three, that most of the paper is spent on, okay, we have this better model. What does that actually mean practically? And then you go and do these things. You were just talking about how one of the things was that you wanted to see, like, are you able to, um, based on these predictions, are you able to do things like uncover chromatin architecture? One of the things I found is particularly interesting was that you tried looking at whether or not the saliency from the model was able to be, was able to uncover enhancers. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. So yeah, first off, yeah, really good observations. Uh, When building sequence models, like DNA sequence models, uh, like the classical evaluation is across chromosomes where you train on a few chromosomes and test on a few other chromosomes. But yeah, as you said, this is not the end goal in itself because we already have the data in those chromosomes. We already measured it. So um, the fact that you can predict those accurately, you know, it's it's nice, but yeah, you have to do other things with it. Either you know, interpret the model, or um, yeah, use it for 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 other predictions. For example, to generalize to to mutations. Um, yeah, for in terms of um, analyzing what the model has learned and whether it has focused on on uh, enhancers, um, th- and this is maybe a bit similar to BPNet, where contribution scores are really useful um, tool for studying, given that the model has made a specific prediction, what input features were most informative. Uh, And this is really big kudos to Avanti, Shrikumar and and Anshul's lab and so on for kind of pioneering on these methods. Um, And there, the question is, is the model looking at specific regulatory elements? And then the question becomes like, what is a good benchmark for you know, promoter enhancer interactions. And um, yeah, surprisingly, it took us quite a bit of discussion on internally and what data we should use there. Uh, fortunately, there's been really some really good data sets on using uh, CRISPR I, so inactivating in chromatin using CRISPR um, to then see what's the in, impact on expression. And I think this is a, like a, a very good experiment to, to probe it. Uh, to probe the promoter-enhancer interactions, and we saw that indeed the model performed quite good on looking at enhancers. Uh, and we saw also that the good performance—you had to really look at uh, the contribution scores with respect to the um, output target that was specific to that cell type. So in this case, this was K562. Uh, so if you, if you, for example, backpropagated from an average cell type representation, then the results weren't as good because uh, the model might have been looking at uh, other positions um, that maybe the enhancers from other cell types. Uh, and so there we, we saw the performance was similar to um, another model um, called uh, ABC model, so activity by contact where the idea is to um, multiply the activity of enhancers typically measured by H3K27 acetylation uh, by... Um, th- you multiply this with uh, high C contact frequency um so yeah it's it's a two very different approaches uh so we re- i was really surprised to see that uh, our model did so well on on this task although for all practical purposes if people want to use this i would still recommend to use the um a- the abc score because it's more practical you just need to you know need two, two, two tracks and it's much cheaper
0: computationally i think that that's also something that um comes up frequently with computational approaches that after somebody's been working on something for so long, like, you present all your results, and then people are like, oh, so you're going to use this in practice? And the person's like, no, of course not, <laughs> because you know, all of the, you know all the flaws in it. But I do agree with you that like these data sets are really interesting because the data sets that you're evaluating against for determining enhancer activity because they, um, they're they measuring direct functional interactions. They're saying, when we, knocked out, when we repressed this locus, that we actually saw a decrease in gene expression, and so that's a causal relationship there. And a lot of the times, the data sets that we have in genomics, and also more broadly, just in machine learning, are based on associations that you can't really determine causal. Um, it, you, you can't really determine whether or not something's causal, but these data sets collected at you know great cost uh, allow you to do that, and your model actually does quite well at a lot of uh, a lot of them when only seeing sequence. It's really interesting because like, that's kind of the canonical thing that people want to do with these attributions. They train the model, they make the predictions, and they say, okay, well, why did you make these predictions? And like you said, that there's been a lot of work on trying to justify that from a principled standpoint and to be able to see a model like Informer trained just on all these various genomic tracks. And then when asked to explain its prediction, said, it's actually this enhancer right here. That's the reason. That's the kind of the end goal of computational biology. That's, what, that's exactly what you want and of course all of the uh predictions from the informer model are perfect and there's no need to use anything else to validate that or anything so uh, we basically solved biology i think
1: no yeah th- this is we're far from this i think <laughs> i think biology is 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 extremely complex and you know uh yeah we have a long way to go which is also the the fun part i would say
0: yeah yeah no i think that that's true i think that um it's kind of similar to the image net moment in computer vision that beforehand people were just playing around with like oh can you identify a dog in this image and it was still kind of like an open question and then these big networks like uh, AlexNet or you know DanNet, if you want to try to give credit to schmidt hooper uh these big networks came around around they came out around like 2012 and they started just blowing everything out of the water and people were like oh is computer vision dead but the qu- it's not that's kind of the opposite of what happened that it's not that computer vision died. It's that it was stuck on this very basic question for a very long time. And now that they had computational models able to solve those basic things it's opened up being able to do so much more. And I think that here that just like informer and these other models are getting what seems to be state of the art performance. It is state of the art performance, yes. but it's state of the art performance are kind of a task that people have been banging away for a really long time and now that we're able to do it, it opens up so much more complicated questions. We weren't even able to tackle before.
1: Yeah, exactly. The yeah, th- I think these, these improvements generally, I think because biology is so complex, you open up more questions uh, as you, you open up many new, or you offer like the ability to ask more questions and therefore yeah, it's, it becomes really interesting.
0: So one of the avenues moving forward is trying to identify variant effect. And this is something that's particularly interesting to me because it's, it's really a complex topic that we, we discussed this on a few of the previous episodes of this podcast, including the ones with Dave Kelly. The, the idea is basically that you know all of, all of us humans have hundreds of thousands of millions of mutations with respect to the reference, and some of those do nothing, and some of those end up causing a lot of disease. And it would be really convenient if all of those mutations fell in, you know, obvious locations, like oh, this is in a gene body and changes the amino acid from one to another, but a lot of them kind of fall in the middle of nowhere, and so a challenge for the last decade has been trying to assign, you know, trying to assign meaning to these variants that kind of fall in the middle of nowhere. And you tried to, you showed some of these uh, more basic. You, you showed some of these results with informa but you also compared the result of Informa to a recent challenge, the the KG5 challenge. Can you talk to us a little bit about what that challenge is and the result you saw with Informa?
1: Yeah, so the question of interpreting genetic variants is indeed central to this approach, and this is kind of, I would say, one of the the main motivating factors of developing these models is to be able to shed light to variants in the non-coding genome. Um, We evaluated our performance in the paper on two different kinds of data uh, so both are ge- you know genetic perturbations where um, like you can think of it as an edit is made to the dna sequence and then the question is uh, how much did expression change uh, and for um for yeah and these two benchmarks were uh so for you were asked specifically for for the last one for the Kagi 5 data set so there was a um, a challenge called critical assessment of genome interpretation um where they asked participants so they performed experiments using massively parallel reporter assay where you basically take a sequence of uh, a regulatory element either enhancer or promoter and you mutate and you generate many sequences from it by systematically mutating every position to to other variants. And then you measure the expression change. Uh, and that way you kind of profile the landscape of that uh, enhancer. And then the question was in that challenge, can you predict the effect the, uh, on expression these mutations will, will have? And we were very surprised to find that we actually outperformed the winning team of that challenge, which which also used methods based on deep learning so for example they i think they integrated things like uh, deep sea um deep sea scores and so on uh and we saw that you can actually get really good performance by you know just taking informer off the shelf and using i think in our case was dna accessibility measures it was surprising that i think accessibility worked better than um than cage which measures expression in that case i pres- presume this is because of the the because they measured enhancer elements which i guess um yeah, anyway, so this is still unclear on why exactly this was the other. This was a better. So, just
0: to be clear, so the goal of the challenge was to assign to each potential variant the effect that it would have on gene expression. Exactly. And so, what you took is the attribution from the method at explaining only the DNA's track for the cell type of interest. So, uh, the informer model is trained to predict 5,313 different
1: uh, genomic tracks. Uh, six hundred some six. I think six hundred and thirty-eight of them are related to cage, which measures you know gene expression or transcriptional output. Um, and we also have some measuring DNA accessibility as DNAs, and they are measured in different cell types. Uh, so in that challenge, what we took, we knew in what cell types these experiments were performed. So we made predictions um with informer for the reference sequence and the alternative sequence with that base mutated the base of interest uh and then we compared predictions for dna accessibility for the genomic track dna accessibility genomic track in that in the cell type of interest and we took the difference uh, between them um and i think we had to filter because informer is obviously based on a very long sequence so i think um, we only took the changes in DNA accessibility in the in the central in the central region because we kind of had to inject the sequence um, of, of of that plasmid in the center of the sequence and then you know make these predictions.
0: You're saying that because the the input and the output of informer is so large compared to the you know the, what they're looking at in the challenge that you kind of had to artificially restrict what informer looked at.
1: Exactly, yes, exactly. I think we, we I, I don't remember what, how we padded the model exactly. I think either we did ends or just random sequences or something like this. Yeah, and then for output as well, because you could be, uh, because the only relevant output is directly on top of the regulatory element that you're studying. So we had to gate it on that as well. But it was still, yeah, it's really really surprising to see that, you know, the model was able to do so well, even though, as you said, it was only trained on the reference genome um and has never seen any variation from it basically
0: yeah i mean i i find the, it particularly surprising because the problem of variant effect is inherently out of distribution that people sometimes think that in distribution or out of distribution just means whether or not the value for each feature is has been seen in the training set uh they say like oh you know for images that seeing entirely zeros might not have actually been seen in the transcript that would be you know pure black, but with DNA, oh, we see a c g t at every position, so all of these sequences are in distribution, but the genome is complex and it's very structured, and so if you're training on the genome, it's possible that changing particular variants can make it be like be something like un- make it be like something that's been that's unseen uh that's totally out of distribution. And so to see all these models, not just informer, but the other machine learning based models, be able to generalize like that, is really interesting.
1: I think the why this is possible is because DNA is still compositional in nature, right? You have, for example, transcription factor binding sites, which are I don't know, you know, ten base pairs long, let's say, and you can kind of see all maybe all. Um, all 10 mares. I mean, 10 mares is maybe too much, but you can explore a large sequence space for, you know, if, if you make the sequence short enough, as you said, like for, for a single base, you explore all the possible possibilities. It's easy for two mares as well. And then as, as you go at some point, you you stop. So the question is if, if your biological phenomena is encoded in these short sequences, then, you know, it, it's easier to learn the deviation from it because you've, you've seen the sequence space there. The other question is then, how does the composition, like, have you seen enough composition of these different elements uh, in action to be able to generalize across them? But yeah, I mean, ideally you'd want to, you know, sample many, many, many different sequences. And this is also why, so we're also training on the mouse genome, which kind of acts as fresh sequences. And this was really a great idea um, that, you know, David and others had for training models on other species to get extra sequences and because you know the code is you know similar it's surprisingly similar between humans and mouse I, i'm always like surprised when when you think about a mouse and a
0: human that how much of the regulatory elements and circuitry is similar between the two i think that people have this baseline that nothing is shared across species and so when they see that some stuff is shared that that seems like a lot um i'm not sure what a good reference actually is though like you have the same you know, you have the same proteins in multiple species. You know, it makes sense that the same proteins would interact with DNA in the same way. But kind of getting back to a previous point, that's not just... Like, yes, of course, you've probably seen most protein binding sites in the genome, and you've probably seen a ton of different variants of that. But if you just take a... You know, if you take some motif that's, like, length 9, then that's, um, what, like, 3 to the ninth possible scramblings of that um i guess 27 different one edit distance scramblings of it that it's unclear to me whether or not because like so biophysically what's happening is that when you edit one of the nucleotides that one or more of the amino acids on the protein is no longer has as much binding strength And so depending on how strongly that protein is binding, either it will have very little effect because other nucleotides are providing a stronger binding affinity, or it can have a huge effect because maybe that was the only thing that was causing it to hang on. But that's not the the simple binding of a protein at a location isn't the whole story for regulation, which I think was a point that you are getting at with being surprised by why the mouse genome was so similar, that there's the composition of other proteins that are in the region that kind of confound all of these things. And so despite the fact that you've probably seen each protein binding site exactly yes. many times in the training data, I feel like you haven't really seen the whole environment more than once of other proteins binding in a similar region.
1: Yeah, I mean, the generalization capabilities are, of course, we, we'd, like, we'd like it to, to to do better, of course. And, and you know, this is one possible direction of improvement. But, like, you've you've seen... A few combinations of transcriptive factors, definitely not all exhaustively. Yeah, I would say it's a,
0: it's an open problem. I mean, what we really need to do is that we need uh, we need alpha fold for DNA protein. I've seen people take alpha fold and just concatenate two proteins together and fold them together, just concatenate the DNA sequence. You can just, you know, I know that it wasn't trained on DNA, but they're like most of those characters acgt are also amino acids so i'm sure you could just put those together and you know you should be able to get the binding affinity for everything it's deep learning right
1: <laughs> yeah sure i guess it's not that trivial but <laughs>
0: I, I just yeah i, I guess you know, each of these things has its own caveats and you know it's not that trivial so maybe um you can talk a little bit about the compute requirements for a model like this that Basenji, when we were talking with Dave, that Basenji itself was taking a lot of compute because there was this like 11 layer, you know, 11 dilated convolution layers trained on, you know, genome-wide on 5,000 tracks. It's kind of a monster. And now you've taken these dilated convolutions, which, while complicated, they're not nearly as compute intensive as transformer layers.
1: Yeah. So this is one of the big advantages of being a deep miner to have access to, um, to to compute and also tools to be able to run these, like train these models on 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 hardware such as TPUs. Uh, so the Infermo model is using um, 64 uh, chips, TPU V3 chips. Um, so this is, it's kind of equivalent, not exactly to 64 GPUs. Um, and it, we're training at batch size one per chip or like, our batch size is 64 but it's you know it's it's one sequence per chip basically because that's um it's kind of the memory limit of these chips is that you know as as you as we increase the model our memory requirements also went up so we can only train on batch size one per chip uh, and the model trains um i forgot exactly how, how long it took to train maybe one or two days or so uh so it's a pretty substantial amount of time of training the model so it's like experimenting with new architecture becomes more difficult. With VPNet, it was, for example, very easy to, you know, traverse the architecture space and try out new ideas because the models were trained under, you know, it took a couple of minutes to train, uh, whereas or maybe up to an hour. Whereas here, if you're talking about multiple days, it's yeah it becomes more challenging to um, to try out new ideas. So you have to
0: be a bit more careful of how you go, like what things you try out. It did seem though like you tried out a kind of comprehensive set of ideas. You know, you have a lot of these figures in the supplement where you compare alternate things. Was it more that um, once you had kind of figured out what the best general approach of model was that you kind of fleshed out the space around that?
1: Yeah, yeah. For, for the paper, yeah, we, we ran a bunch of ablation studies, uh, because like the way to getting the solution is quite messy uh of like trying things out and and see what works so at the end we wanted to as you said like map out the space um of yeah you know to, to see basically what what really helped the model and not uh and to to try to really pinpoint it at what specific aspect of it is helpful and and which ones aren't to to also you know give some insights to the community as as in what things were important and what aren't so for example if people want to build on top of the, this work so that they would know what, what, what is, for example, not important at all.
0: So if you had to summarize some of those things uh, for the general for a general audience, what would you say generally was very helpful and generally was not helpful at all?
1: One thing that was helpful was um, these relative positional encodings. We saw a nice boost from using them compared to uh, standard like relative positional and basic fun- functions that use sine cosine. We also... In- increase the number of channels that helped a bit Uh, so that increased the capacity of the model something which was quite interesting that we saw is for example let's say if you restrict the receptive field of the transformer to be the same as for dilated convolution so for example if you allow the transformer to always see like a fixed width left and right um, even that seems to help a bit so there's seems like the uh, transformers are like a good way to process these sequences at least you know in the abstract space Uh, it could be because they maybe don't maybe they overfit less than convolutions I don't know I don't know the exact reason Uh, and we also had some smaller improvements on pooling Uh, so Basenji 2 uses pooling, uh, max pooling uh, and we saw that by using attention pooling you are probably losing less information uh, because you're you know, it's a bit more expensive operation where you say, you know, how much when you do your averaging of your nucleotides, you kind of weight them by, by attention. So it's, and it's quite nice because it it allows you to kind of interpolate between average pooling and max pooling while being more general. So
0: that was also one of the things we saw that helped. I don't think I had seen the idea behind attention pooling before this. Is this an idea that you and your team came up with? I mean,
1: Yes, but I later saw later saw its other incarnations of it of this end of literature. So I don't want to you know claim the idea, uh, but it, it made sense to me to um, to have something more flexible than than uh, than you know average pulling or max pulling, and also because attention is really good at aggregating information. I thought you know maybe it would be also good for pulling, and that
0: all make, that makes sense to me that um, a, a lot of these components in neural networks are extremely flexible that you can change out all of the parts people like using the parts that have been made before like max pooling average pooling etc when in fact everything is quite flexible
1: yeah it's kind of stacking lego blocks and then maybe sometimes you come up with a with a new lego block and yeah you know, especially if you're if you manage to improve the model
0: that's that's quite fun i have to say though that um i didn't quite appreciate the extent to which Things can be changed there, there, there are kind of two things this is totally off topic by the way but uh, there, there are two things that really help me realize how flexible all this stuff can be. The first is this line of work from qualey about learning uh, the operations so basically they have this set mm. of yeah, yeah. basic operations like additions multiplications etc and they run evolutionary programming to just try to learn more complicated operations and activation functions from the data by like kind of composing these together and using genetic algorithms. And they've been able to rediscover not just some of the more commonly used approaches like transformers, batch normalization, et cetera, but also improve upon them. And so that really helped me think about how all of these operations can be broken down. All these layers can be broken down to their basic operations. And the second is actually switching to PyTorch. I was really skeptical that uh, any, you know, that anything could be better than you know Keras for the Theano backend. That's you know kind of the state of the art in deep learning programming for me. But then once you switch over to PyTorch, and I guess this idea of having a like a computational graph that can be extremely flexible, you can change so much stuff. You can it kind of opens your world past the idea of using just the preset layers in something like Keras or uh, the built-in TensorFlow stuff.
1: Yeah. I absolutely yeah, I I agree to to both things. Yeah, I find the you know, like architecture search quite mind blowing. Although it's it's difficult to run for large models, so I guess yeah, uh, you need you know big amounts of computer on this. In terms of frameworks, I think frameworks have gotten really good overall. There's one thing that people are really excited about in DeepMind is JAX, which is kind of an alternative to uh, to PyTorch. It's it's slightly yeah, it's a bit different, um, but um, it's basically like, yeah, Num- NumPy, NumPy that runs on TPUs, and you're able to back, pro- like, right, Autograd plus NumPy plus TPUs, basically.
0: Yeah, I was um, basically, you know, I have an outsider's history of TensorFlow, uh, whereas, you know, you directly work for one of the companies there. So you probably have more accurate view of what's going on, whereas I have more hot takes. And it just seems like TensorFlow is kind of a hot mess that there are so many different competing versions within TensorFlow of how to actually do things. And it seems like JAX is just the latest incarnation where like, well, everything we've done so far has been a nightmare. So let's make something that looks like PyTorch. (laughs) Do you have any thoughts on the difference between JAX and PyTorch? Yeah, uh,
1: I think the hardware is a key difference. Like TPUs require special compilers to run on them. Um, And because they are... They have a more restrictive architectures than gpus you really need the compiler heavy lifting uh in order to so basically you need you need you need the operation to be laid out ahead of time so that you can optimize them um in order to execute them um efficiently because like as soon as you start using more lower level um you know compute things, then you you have to rely on your compilers to do all the heavy lifting. Um, And because of that, you really have to when running on TPUs, you really have to compile your program and you have to know ahead of time how it's going to execute. So that's why. Like, if you were to run, if you were to run like just um, if you were to run eagerly on TPUs, it would be very slow, I think, and it will burn a lot of memory and and so forth. and because of that, I think yeah, you really have to, um, you know, jit your functions. Like you have to do just in time compilations. I don't know the exact history of like yeah, uh, I'm not a, I'm not the best person to ask about tensor programming. Uh, why, like, what are the why not just adapt PyTorch? Or, but I, th- I think it has to do a bit with the, the compiler uh, things and, and jitting. But. Yeah, I think be, I would basically I would redirect that question to other other people at, at DeepMind and Google, uh, because if yeah any of my answers would be you know would provide injustice. Um, having said that, I find you know both Jax and um, I I think both all three frameworks have have their own advantages. Um, although like if you're running a GPU, GPUs, probably PyTorch is really good um, because yeah you like, if you don't have to compile things, it's super useful. Uh, to be able to run it eagerly, um, whereas yeah, TensorFlow has a has a big eco- ecosystem, which is part of it. Probably why it makes it difficult for people to um, um, why why did the complexity rises if you start to you know support too many things, um, which is something that you know Jacks tries to avoid. Is basically tries to be very minimal, um, to have you know to support as as few features as possible,
0: but as much as necessary. Good to hear that you're fully endorsing PyTorch and uh, telling people not to use anything else. No, I'm not doing that.
1: <laughs> Basically, use whatever whatever gets the job done. And yeah, uh, sir. yeah, so whatever whatever you like and gets the job done. It's it's really cool that we have these frameworks nowadays, um, and that because like imagine you know where you had to like code up back propagation yourself. <laughs> or right, right code. I don't know in Lua or sorry, not Lua. In in what was it in um,
0: uh, Lisp or whatever It was Lua? Yeah, the original Torch. Yeah, I remember when I started that the like, Cafe was the thing that was out there, and the only way, like it only took command line operations and you had to specify your model in a text file?
1: Yeah, yeah, I remember. Uh, I haven't used Cafe, but I I remember uh, people complaining about. Uh, the difficulty to tweak it if you wanted to tweak it. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. Okay. Well, um at this point I'm kind of out of questions. Do you have anything else that you'd like to share about the project? Yeah, there's there's just one more
1: analysis I wanted to highlight, and which is something I, I liked in the paper was our analysis uh on EQTLs, which are variants associated with um expression. Uh and there one of the benchmarks was the the task of distinguishing eQTLs that um, were statistically determined to to be fine, causal, because you know most eQTLs are not causal because of the co-inheritance between variants, uh, and then the idea the question is can the model tell you can the model distinguish between variants that are deemed causal versus those that aren't, and we saw pretty good. Performance on that task, and also an improvement uh, on this task, and I think this is a
0: you know a promising direction moving forward. So the, just to be clear, these are these are variants where you have a whole bunch of candidate eQTLs. Exactly. And the, when you say the task of fine fine mapping, that it's trying to distinguish between from all these candidate eQTLs, which ones are the actual causal drivers? Exactly. Yes. And there the are
1: Bayesian Bayesian statistical methods. Like the feel of fine mapping has been has improved a lot in the in the last years. And you have Bayesian tools that basically give you a posterior inclusion probability for every variant that tells you, like, what's the likelihood that this variant is should be, you know, included in the final causal model. And we basically compiled a data set between variants that have, you know, high inclusion probability versus those that, you know, although they were originally in the EQTL set, um, they had a very low inclusion probability, meaning that you know they're very likely to be spurious correlations, and then the question is, can the model distinguish between these two classes of variants? And it, it can, it can do, uh, and it's it's helpful. This is also one of the recent David's papers
0: where um,
1: they have distinguished. Um, they they basically used the model to do the fine mapping task.
0: Yeah, I think that this idea of trying to do fine mapping is really interesting. Can you talk a little bit more though about? Um... about where you get the set of candidate EQTLs from and where you get the set of actual causal drivers from? Because it sounds like you, at least for uh, some of these settings, you know the true causal drivers, otherwise you couldn't evaluate the model.
1: Well, it's all still based on, you know, statistical models of interpreting EQTLs because, like, from a population study, you will only, you know, I mean, you get associations, right? So basically the basic set of eqtls um is i think the is, is used from GTEx data set where you know you have i don't know a thousand individuals and you correlate their genotypes with expression across different tissues um, and then you take that and you run um, statistical tools like susie um, i forgot what the exact uh, abbreviation stands for and And these tools take into consideration the co-inheritance pattern so the linkage disequilibrium between variants and the gene expression Uh, and then they give you this bayesian posterior inclusion probability that tells you like which one is is likely to be causal although basically there are many loci where you cannot where the methods is not able to resolve it because there's just too much co-inheritance and there are some regions where you, you are able to to say based on this information so um, you know, we only took the set that was kind of confident that, you know, we, were, the method was fairly confident that, you know, you're getting the right causal EQTLs, although it's a still a very challenging task to, you know, exactly, you know, so I guess it's, it's, it's up to, uh, down to probabilities that, you know, on average, you're, you're going to be right. W- w- like many often, but not all will be causal that you called, like we included posterior inclusion probabilities, which with 90% meaning that if the methods worked exactly as expected then 10% would be you know non-causal whereas 90 would be causal that makes sense yeah but the the set of variants was filtered quite heavily down from all the qtls because you know as i said from some loci um, you you cannot distinguish them and you cannot find them out so you cannot evaluate it, it the model there
0: yeah i think that this task is particularly challenging because what, what you're saying is basically that you want to uh, that across a bunch of individuals you identify variants that are correlated with the thing you care about, in this case, gene expression. But there are so many other things that can cause, you know, association isn't causation, and there are so many things that can cause spurious, well, not spurious correlations, but can cause, like, more complicated independent structures like uh, LD disk equilibrium, et cetera. And so I do think that the idea of using machine learning models that are training, they're trained to predict something else, like epigenomic state, to try to identify, like, does this variant change epigenomic state? And if it doesn't, then it's probably not changing gene expression. I think that that idea makes a lot of sense.
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. And uh, this is kind of the fundamental way the model is classifying these two categories, because if the model says it's not changing any chromatin or anything, it's probably a spurious
0: correlation. Great. Well, thank you again for joining us. It's been great hearing more about the inner workings of this paper. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me,
1: Jacob. Uh, by the way, I really this is a public endorsement. I really like your work as well. I think you, <laughs> you've done uh, some, uh, you know, really good, really good stuff. Uh, and look forward to to see what's next for you coming out of uh, Anshun's lab. Well, thank you. Yeah. It was a very fun chat. Thanks.